The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your captains of comprehension. My name is Jordan Runtug. And I'm Alex Agle. That was a good one, right? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that okay. one. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us for part two of our trilogy detailing the making of my beloved Titanic, which recently turned 25 years old. Our previous episode covered the film's lengthy pre-production in which James Cameron dove two and a half miles beneath the North Atlantic <laughs> to film the wreck of the great ship and also assembled his cast, which, in the case of Leonardo DiCaprio, took some serious convincing. Today, we're going to discuss basically everything you saw on the first VHS of the original 90s release. Real ones know what I'm talking about. Basically, everything <laughs> up to the moment the ship hits the berg. We'll go deep. Huh? See what I did there? <laughs> we'll go deep on James Cameron's insane mission to essentially reconstruct an almost full-sized replica of the ship, which he could then sink over and over, <laughs> costing upwards of $200 million and the sanity of the hundreds of people on his crew. As a mega Titanic nerd since long before the movie, JC will have my heart forever. What about you, Heigl? I mean, you don't, uh, it's like arguing with the sun, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) what are you going to say about James Cameron, the most money-making, crazy filmmaker of all time? Like, he's like not a fun boss. Like, oh, well, he's made like (laughs) three of the highest grossing movies of all time. Four now, I guess, with. With the new Avatar? With another yeah. Avatar? Yeah, like, what are you, what are you gonna do? <laughs> Fight City Hall? <laughs> Old man yells at son. Crew yeah, member these, yells at James Cameron. All these people who were like, when, like, do you follow, like, the box office prediction number wonks? No. All these people who are like, yeah, you know, Avatar 2 is gonna have this big drop and it's gonna drop off and blah, 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 blah. And then all these other people come out of the woodwork that are like, don't bet against James Cameron. <laughs> it's like, no sh- don't bet against James Cameron. Like, why do you feel compelled to defend him? He's he's like on the mount. He's Mount Rushmore of blockbusters. You know, I do don't you know. Ever feel like 
he should be more famous than he is considering no. no okay no even though maybe this is just a personal thing i don't feel like he's spoken about in like spielbergian he's not and i think terms. it's so much of that is 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 him, him <laughs> he's, yeah. he's not like a cuddly twinkly like sentimentalist with a cute beard who wears flannel you know or like a or like an arch removed intellectual auteur like kubrick he's he's just like he's like vince lombardi or like bobby <laughs> knight you know like he gets results but he's unpleasant and i think everyone knows that but yeah man you can't argue with that record it's like i don't know it's it's i i do wonder how much of it comes down to the personal thing i mean in, in the the like film nerd the limit very limited film nerd circles i run in he's not really thought of as like um like a camera work guy. Like oh, he doesn't yeah. have like particularly, you know, like you talk about like Wes Anderson with like the perfect, like symmetrical tableaus and, or um, Darren Aronofsky with like the editing or like different people with long takes and split diopters, the Scorsese zoom. Like, I don't really think that there's like a set of like visual cues that people can easily glom onto in his work. I might be talking out of pocket there. I didn't go to film school, but yeah, I think He's less of a visualist than more of just like a total package auteur. And I mean, like like Stephen Lang said, the only two things he can't do are cater and act. So <laughs> every he's just the total. I think maybe that's why he's not thought of as like a pure artiste, is because he is just the total gestalt of films that make so much damn money. <laughs> I love the minor revenge that his crew takes on getting these like passive aggressive t-shirts made like in yeah. the last episode we talked about the how I think the crew on Terminator 2 had t-shirts made that read you can't scare me I work for James Cameron and we'll talk about some other passive aggressive t-shirts that the Titanic crew made on this episode when I was a kid I had one on the making of Terminator 2 uh, and I think Either he was wearing one or there was one that was like mentioned in an onset report that like always made me laugh as a kid, which was if assholes could fly, this place would be an airport. <laughs> I don't know if he was wearing that to get back at the crew or it was just like a like an onset. Crew just joke. It. <laughs> yeah, it's true. This is a belief. It's just it's, an, it's just a motto. It's the personal yeah. daily affirmation. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean it's it's it is interesting to think about I guess he's like Stephen King, man. I mean, or yeah, that's a good or James Patterson or like, I mean, he's a better artist than James Patterson. James Patterson doesn't write particularly well, but I would I would compare him as to like Stephen King is like someone who's like, it's like like the fifth element, you know, he's, he's just like another he's like a part of the pop culture air less than he is uh, a working mechanism within it, you know, well said. <laughs> yeah, I like because it's such an interesting question. I love talking about it. I mean, because yeah, he's when you think about like the people that film Twitter really like nuts over. I don't really see people being like, "Oh, James Cameron's visual language is so specific and detailed, and I love his camera movements and the pace of his editing." It's everyone's just like, "No, he just makes incredible blockbuster films." World builder. Yeah, yeah, but then I don't know if the world building actually works. Like, do people, other people, really out there who are like whole hog on like the Navi, the Navi, like the the world of Avatar? Like, <laughs> you staring back at me, trying to pronounce Navi, not Navi. 
I guess I'm talking more specifically about rebuilding the Titanic, I suppose. Yes. No, I mean, literally will, building worlds. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I don't think he's, I think the, the Avatar home run swing to create like a Star Wars universe. I don't know. The only reason I know, the only character I know in Avatar is Jake Sully, which is just so funny. It's, which is the only reason, like it's the, <laughs> it's the bland, like lead. And the only reason I know that is because they all have like Navi names and there's all this, all this, you get all the world of Pandora and everything. <laughs> And then your protagonist's name is Jake Sully. <laughs> they all just South Boston. <laughs> they, all, they all just call him Jake Sully. God, that movie would be so much funnier if he had like a screaming Southie <laughs> accent. <laughs> I'm not gonna do one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, like, well, he like he like puts his braid into the tree and he's like, say, how do you mother for me? <laughs> <laughs> That's my pitch for Avatar. It's Avatar Five Southie. Avatar. <laughs> F- you I mean, tree. <laughs> I mean, he's gonna die sometime. Someone's gotta make five. That's true. Maybe it'll be Ben Affleck. <laughs> oh wow. Another champion developing bit. All of <laughs> yeah. this is verbally contracted, yes. by the way. If I see Avatar Five Southie pop up on SNL, I know someone owes me residuals on that idea. Um well, megalomania aside, I feel a real kinship with James Cameron over Titanic. Time travel's always been a big thing for me. I, I, I don't know where that came from. And as a boy, I watched a movie called Somewhere in Time, in which the main character, played by Christopher Reeve, wills himself back in time through self-hypnosis. He dresses in vintage clothes and surrounds himself with period items to complete the illusion. And... In a funny way, I sort of subconsciously adopted this approach as a kid. I went to antique stores and flea markets and bought all kinds of vintage toys and old magazines and radios and anything from the mid-century from the time of my beloved Beatles just to fill up my little room, reasoning that if I couldn't actually go back in time, I'd bring the time to me. Through meticulous research, I hope to recreate elements of existence in the 60s and experience it for myself. See what they saw, do what they did, hear what they hear, watch what they watched. And it was an interesting adolescent thought experiment. You know, if you could theoretically get all the elements exactly right, what's the difference? The only giveaway is the calendar. Uh, this was years before M. Night Shyamalan made The Village, I might add. <laughs> Um, and so I did this for the Titanic as a little kid I would draw like the famous wooden clock on the grand staircase on like a little piece of paper and tape it up in my room above my bed and I would try to recreate the grand staircase in my bedroom using construction paper I wanted to be there I wanted to see it and this was around the same time that the first reports of James Cameron's movie were published and he frequently spoke of this production as his attempt at time travel everything was recreated down to the rivets every extra was given a name and a backstory of a real person and Cameron choreographed them all to follow the route that they were known to have taken that night the ship sank. And he'd often say in interviews, if you were to stand on the deck of the Titanic the night it sank, this is what you would have seen. And reading all this from my lovingly appointed 1964-era bedroom, I remember <laughs> thinking, hey, he's playing my game. He just has a bigger budget. So needless to say, I am beside myself with excitement right now that we're doing this episode. Heigl, would you like to uh, diagnose me? <laughs> We really are two sides of the same James Cameron corn. We're both obsessive. You're just nicer about it. (laughs) And I don't care about boats or planes. (laughs) Just um, period accurate music. (laughs) And human suffering. Yeah, that too. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, we have a lot to talk about, so let's dive in. No teasers this time around because we have no time to waste. Without further ado, please enjoy the second installment of our three-part episode sharing everything you didn't know about James Cameron's Titanic. Well, getting the cast was a breeze compared to what James Cameron had to do in order to create the sets for this movie. But first, let's back it up a second. During James Cameron's second dive to the wreck, he had an emotional breakthrough and started to cry. He told journalist Paula Parisi, I just sat there and I just started to cry, thinking about the dive and everything I'd seen and experienced. He later wrote in the book about the Titanic production, That night I realized that my film was doomed to failure if it could not convey the emotion of that night rather than the fact of it. In this way, Cameron wrote, the film comes full circle. From being a film about Titanic, to being a love story that happens merely to be set on Titanic, back to being about the emotional truth of Titanic after all. By feeling the fear, the loss, the heartbreak of Jack and Rose, we finally can feel for the 1500 who died. And just as Bill Paxson's character would learn, suddenly this wasn't just an academic history, but a very human story. Visiting the wreck had made the Titanic real for James Cameron, and now everything he did after these dives had to live up to that same level of authenticity. So if you're going to see the real wreck, you got to see the real ship, which translates in production terms to rebuild the Titanic and sink it. Told another way, James Cameron's catharsis meant months of living hell for a crew the size of a small town. <laughs> there, there are essentially four distinct phases of this production. The deep dive to the wreck in the summer of 1995, a three-day shoot inside submerged recreated interiors of the wreck as Brock Lovett's remote-controlled vehicle looks for the heart of the ocean safe, the modern-day portion of the story that they filmed on the Keldish boat and in Halifax in the summer of 1996 when the clam chowder incident took place, and finally, the recreated Titanic set. Obviously, the latter was the phase that was the most difficult. Shockingly, the most cost-effective way to make a movie that took place on a ship and involved characters going all over said ship was to actually build a substantial portion of the ship and then sink it. There was no studio in the world that was big enough or had facilities capable of staging this on the scale that James Cameron wanted. The Titanic was 882 feet long and 92 feet wide. There aren't really any pools the size of three football fields out there. So, they had to get creative. There were early talks with a Polish shipyard about building a full-scale replica of the ship for the purposes of being sunk on camera. Shockingly, it wasn't the cost that was the problem, but the shipyard, perhaps understandably, couldn't promise to get it all done on time. In real life, the hull of the Titanic, and that's not including any of the rooms and the fittings and all that stuff inside, just the hull took over two years to build. So, that plan with the shipyard was scrapped. Another idea involved using a massive container ship and dressing it to look like the Titanic by hanging a 300-foot facade over one of the sides. <laughs> Just kind of funny. Big floating facade. <laughs> but that would have required too much to be added digitally. And again, this is 1996, 1997 when CGI was still in its infancy. So that idea was also out. Shooting on the open water is always a nightmare anyway, because, I mean, just look at the famously troubled productions of movies like Jaws and Waterworld. After five months of global research and test shoots with a 20-foot model, the production team convinced Fox that <laughs> a fully controlled <laughs> land-based facility was needed to both build and repeatedly sink the Titanic. So for the first time in its history, Fox built a studio from the ground up. They did it in Mexico for James Cameron. 
<laughs> they built a studio for James Cameron. This task involved a reported $57 million, the cooperation of the Mexican government, a host of multinational corporations, and a reported 5 million pounds of steel. Fox's studios in Baja was nicknamed 100 Day Studios, so named for the amount of time it took to construct it. They built a studio in 100 days. Uh, four months. That, okay. It was built in the town... <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was built in the town of Santa Rosarito, which is 20 miles south of San Diego, just over the border in Mexico, to save on labor costs. They took it mm. to Mexico. Apparently, there are no unions there, and workers would do the job for $20 a day. Fox executive Tom Sherrick proudly told journalists on the set, this is NAFTA at work. That aged well. Oh. The brilliant Sarah Marshall, who is the host of the podcast You're Wrong About, has an incredible uh, long read in BuzzFeed about the making of production. And she notes in this piece that this is a noteworthy detail, the whole going to Mexico for cheap labor thing, uh, considering the movie in question is, quote, so concerned with the politics and hierarchies of labor and Titanic never for a moment lets you forget that the captain's pleasure in his unsinkable ship is powered by the sweat of the stokers in the hold. Uh, the production facility needed to be situated on a coastline for daytime shots so you could get the horizon line and it would appear like the ship was actually out on the open sea. So in other words, they had to build a huge tank with the rebuilt Titanic inside and the ocean in the background so it looked like it was sailing. <sighs> does, does this make sense? It's hard to describe without visuals here. Uh, Building purchased- a bathtub in the ocean. Building a bathtub on the beach, really. On the beach. <laughs> so that, yeah, so that the ocean was in the background so that when you shoot it level on the ground, it looks like you're in the middle of the ocean and the ship that's in the tub is sailing. Fox purchased 40 acres of waterfront in Mexico and Jim brought down this 20-foot model of the ship and moved it around their gargantuan new property to figure out where the best natural lighting conditions were and also wind so that when the smoke came out of the smokestacks, it blew backwards without the aid of fans to create the effect that the ship was moving forward. (laughs) When he finally found his preferred spot, he was told that that particular piece of land was not part of this 40-acre lot they just bought. He simply replied, oh, then we'll need to buy this too. (laughs) Construction on Fox Studios Baja began on May 11th, 1996, coincidentally the same day that Titanic's hull was launched in Belfast Harbor at the Harlan and Wolf shipyard 85 years earlier to the day. They had just four months of prep time before shooting was due to begin, and Cameron told the crowd at the groundbreaking ceremony, there's nothing quite so terrifying or exhilarating as a deadline. Truth. Workers used what numerous outlets have reported to be 10,000 tons of dynamite to blast away the volcanic rock on the coastline and build the open-air tank that would hold James Cameron's Titanic structure. That is about half the power of the atomic bomb Trinity test at Los Alamos in 1945. So this tank, it was the largest tank ever constructed for a film capable of holding 17 million gallons of water and providing 270 degrees of uninterrupted ocean view. This wasn't even the hardest part. After you built the world's <laughs> largest tank, you got to actually rebuild the Titanic. And, you know, it's a standard approach in movies with large objects. You just build miniatures and also small portions of the set in full scale, and then you use camera tricks to create the illusion that the set is bigger than it actually appears and fuller than it really is. James Cameron didn't go for that. He built a structure that was 90% the size of the actual Titanic. 
<laughs> the real Titanic was 883 feet long. The replica was 775 feet long. To accommodate this 10% difference, the funnels were scaled down 10%. In a rare concession to cost, Cameron took out three 18-foot-long chunks out of the ship in between each of the funnels because all the windows and portholes looked more or less the same. It was deemed redundant. So if you picture a big baguette, for example, imagine <laughs> they sliced out three pieces in the middle of it at different points and then smooshed it all back together. That's basically what he did for the length of the Titanic. They also eliminated most of what's called the forward well deck to get it to fit all in the tank. In reality, this set was actually five separate pieces slammed together. This wasn't a ship per se, but a steel frame covered with steel plates decorated with thousands of rivets and hundreds of portholes. And as we'll touch on later, they only completed one side of the ship, the right-facing or starboard side, which was facing the land where the cameras were set up and pointed out to sea. The other side was just open scaffolding and metalwork. Uh, and as we'll come back to later, this required a bit of camera flip-flopping when they needed to film a scene on the opposite side of the ship. Uh, so to say that Cameron built a proper ship isn't quite true because it didn't float. It didn't have any interiors. It was more like a massive facade built with a boat deck on top. But still... 775 feet long and 10 stories high. That's nothing to sneeze at. Now he's going to have to go and do it again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put another way, this is the equivalent of building a 70-story skyscraper on its side. <laughs> so if you're picking up on a theme here, it was the largest single movie set ever constructed, requiring 15,000 sheets of plywood, several tons of paint, 300 tons of steel reportedly bolted together by just 30 laborers. <laughs> <laughs> it seems impossible to me. The original plans for the Titanic from the Harlan and Wolf shipbuilders were believed lost during World War II, but they were ultimately recovered and consulted for the production. So the set was built exactly as the Titanic was, down to the specific rivet formations on the side of the ship. There were also 3,000 light fixtures fed by 30 miles of cabling, more than three times the number of light fixtures used on the real ship. So, I mentioned this earlier, the ship was slightly smaller than the original. Once again, if you picture the full-length ship, imagine someone sliced out 18-foot chunks between each of the four funnels, then shoved those pieces together. In addition, a special section constructed for the very front of the ship, you know, where they did the whole King of the World scene, and the very back, where Jack and Rose held on during the sinking. There were separate joints in the set, which divided it into fifths. This was helpful when it came to the sinking scenes. The front part of the set was built on hydraulic lifts that allowed that portion to be tilted into the water and sunk at will. And the Titanic sank from the bow, so the front section was able to sink lower into the water, and they could just raise and lower that set as needed. Unfortunately, this front part of the set collapsed at one point during the filming, nearly injuring several crew members and resulting in one of many delays. And also, the stern portion of the set was built to tilt to 90 degrees straight up into the air. Again, remember the end of the movie when Jack and Rose are mm -hmm. hanging on as the whole ship just sinks into the water like a, I don't know, like an elevator. To shoot the massive overhead god shots, especially during the sinking, they decided that helicopter shots were too expensive. So instead, they commandeered a massive construction crane that they'd used to build the set and mounted it on railway tracks. So it was essentially a gargantuan 162-foot dolly. And the camera platform on top contained a gyro-stabilized West Cam, a Steadicam, and a handheld camera, and room for Cameron to stand up there with his megaphone and direct the thousands of actors and crew, like the god that um, he no doubt felt he was. <laughs> 
I might have to re-record some of that because it's so insane. But uh, yeah, the scale of this, to say nothing of the audacity, is awe-inspiring. I'd like to quote from John H. Richardson's piece for Premier Magazine in December 1997 called Inside the Punishing Dictatorship That Was James Cameron's Titanic Set. <laughs> currently, It's currently available on Deadspin. <laughs> Until we can put pictures in podcasts, this will go some way in conveying the scope of this set. From a mile away, you see the four Titanic funnels. The driver kills the lights as he passes the security gate into the Titanic campus, 40 acres of instant movie studio, complete with three sound stages, 32,000-foot wet stage with 5-million-gallon tank, production offices, construction shops, dressing rooms, and various other buildings. All of this face a six-acre, 17-million-gallon outdoor tank, the largest in the world. It's not a set. It's a city. It's so large, there are lights on it to warn low-flying airplanes. (laughs) In the center of it all, the Titanic, built to 90% scale from the original plans, portholes gleaming against the Black Pacific. It is a vast and magnificent thing, long as three football fields and tall as a giant redwood. Filming on the set began on September 18th, 1996, and by my count, wrapped seven months or 164 days later on March 22nd, 1997. During that time, some crazy stuff would go down. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit Spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now, I'm a big fan of miniatures, so I want to give a quick shout out to the digital domain team who put together the 120th scale model of the Titanic. It took a crew of 26 people to craft this piece that was 45 feet long, 17 feet tall, and 10 feet wide. It was so big that there were actually interior rooms that were built and furnished because they would be seen when the ship was lit up for night scenes. And these rooms were elaborate 
And this gets interesting because one of the main rooms on the ship, the first class lounge, which is the room where Rose and her mother have tea before Rose has her breakdown and runs off to try to jump off the back of the ship. That room was deemed too expensive to build as a full scale set because it was just way too much elaborate wood paneling and stained glass. But the model version, which was six inches tall, was so intricate and historically accurate that they actually shot Rose and the rest of the tea party on a green screen and then digitally composited in with the interior shots of this dollhouse sized room, which I think is really clever. In addition to building a 135th size model for when the ship broke in two, the digital domain team also built a 120th scale model of the wreck as well, which we mentioned earlier. And they were really under the gun to make it look authentic because James Cameron was going to be cutting back and forth between the model and the actual wreck footage multiple times in a given scene. So it had to look identical. To get that dark underwater effect with the lights of the submarines peering through the underwater haze, they filled the room with a tremendous amount of smoke and the effect is remarkable and they were very proud to learn that they fooled james cameron himself on a few of these shots interestingly the model makers for digital domain worked in the same hangar where howard hughes built his spruce goose wooden plane which was later flown by leonardo dicaprio in the aviator well not really but in the movie <laughs> he did, you know. i'm shocked i'm shocked that cameron didn't decide to then do that yeah um so that is the exteriors well <laughs> <laughs> what about the interiors? Uh, James Cameron, as you may have gleaned from the fact that he built nine-tenths of the actual ship in Mexico in a bathtub on the beach. And went to the real Titanic, two and a half miles down. 33 times. Uh, you, yeah, he, he, he went the extra mile on the interiors. Um, the rooms were reproduced as they were originally built, which you said was basically, it was difficult given the paucity of actual photographs, right? Yeah, yeah, I think there were, again, 39 known photos of the Titanic's interior. So f to the guy who was tasked with that uh, was uh, Peter Lamont, who's a set designer who'd overseen 17 James Bond films and had three Oscar nominations. He was about to retire when just when I thought I was out. <laughs> Cameron pulled me back in. Um, Cameron pitched him this, saying it was going to be a mix of, basically that it would be a mix of set design, reverse engineering, and archaeology. Um, so they were basically working off of mostly photos of the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic, uh, even visiting places where the fittings for the ship had been installed and preserved after the ship was scrapped in the 30s. Oh, this was cool. Yeah, but they had a big auction when the ship was... I mean, first of all, it's just nuts to me that nobody thought to save this glorious old ship in the way that, like, the Queen Mary is now a floating hotel in Long Beach in Los Angeles. But yeah, the ship was scrapped, I want to say, in 1936, and the fittings were auctioned off. And, like, there's pieces of, I think, like, the Grand Staircase in like a paint factory in like Wales or something. And like, sure. uh, and there's a hotel called the white Swan hotel in a place called Alnwick, England. That is notable for having, uh, the first class lounge that we just talked about. This has glorious woods scene where Rose and her mom had a tea party is now the lounge in this hotel. And I think they also have elements of the grand staircase, uh, in this little, like, it, it's not a fancy hotel. I mean, it's like this little, almost like faulty tower style, like quaint English. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy that it has this incredible history. So yeah, all over the world, there are all these elements of Titanic's identical sister, just in strange places. Uh, production also into a museum in Canada where there was a preserved Titanic deck chair and also the famous piece of wreckage that Rose floats on. Everyone calls it a door, but it is not. It's a piece of wall paneling from above a door. 
Ugh. So Cameron built the multi-floored grand staircase for real out of oak and then flooded it, destroying it. Uh, 18,000 square feet of carpeting used on this set were woven by the original suppliers of Titanic's carpet, BMK Stoddard of England, using the original design and colors. And since most of the props would have to be destroyed during the sinking scenes, they couldn't borrow any of this stuff. They had to make everything themselves from thousands of pieces of china to cutlery, uh, silver, furniture, wall paneling, suitcases, Thousands of pieces of props from ashtrays to teacups to forks all had to be stamped with the White Star Line emblem, even if it was impossible for people to see. Um, Cameron decided the chandeliers couldn't be cheap imitation crystal made from lucite because they wouldn't make the proper sounds. Uh, when And apparently he does not believe in Foley art. Oh, wait, when, when the ship starts to tilt, you hear the like tinkle of the crystal. Like It's, it's terrifying. Yeah, you couldn't do that on a soundstage? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't a lot of sets like not have ceilings at all? And he like insisted yeah, yeah, on building exactly. ceilings on the set. Yeah. Uh, even the food was authentic um, for the first class dining room sequence where Leo tells the snobs to make every day count. The actors were being served real beluga caviar, which costs between $32 to $4,500 per pound. Actor Jonathan Hyde, who played J. Bruce Ismay, the managing director of the Titanic shipping line, reportedly made the acting decision on the spot that his character was a big eater. <laughs> these sets were constructed in a five million gallon tank not far from the ship set that were designed to be flooded uh and like the grand staircase scene they got one shot at it and they would which would ruin a massive bespoke piece of oak one of the few liberties that james cameron took involved lighting the ship was a good deal darker than you actually see it depicted on film because most public areas were lit by 25 or even 15 watt bulbs uh, would have been more yellowy or orangey than the brilliant blinding white that you see in movies that we're accustomed to would have looked like a bar in Bushwick lit with Edison <laughs> bulbs. Um, yeah, I mean, the tables in the dining room didn't actually have lamps on them, but Cameron needed some kind of organic way to light the actors, um, which was an even bigger problem during the sinking scenes because there was no moon out on the night of the sinking and any other moon phase would have given them an excuse to use this soft lighting. You call it moonlight, but it's really tough to create soft, non shadowy illumination that couldn't be mistaken for moonlight once the ship actually sank. So Cameron got around this by having lots of lit portholes, which uh, made a lot of historians uh, pedantically upset uh, because the Titanic was underbooked on her maiden voyage by 1,300 people. So not all of the portholes depicted in the film would have actually been lit. There were extra lights added to the boat deck on the set, and the funnels and smokestacks were basically floodlit, which would not have been as it occurred in true life. So not only was this a freezing... Uh, panicking nightmare. Uh, it was also dark. Very dark. The scene when the lifeboats go back looking for bodies and they have flashlights. No flashlights. So you're just bumping through frozen corpses in the middle <sighs> of the North Atlantic in the dark. Good Lord. Happy New Year. <laughs> in the Titanic production book that you mentioned earlier, it is said that in the pre-World War I Gilded Age, the wealthy spent more money on clothes than in any period of history. Which, I don't know how they verified that, but yeah. go nuts. Uh, the costumes for Titanic cost somewhere in the vicinity of $8.4 The film contains 100 speaking parts and over 1,000 extras, all of whom would need to be dressed in over-the-top costumes, which would then get drenched for part of the movie. Just the scene where the ship takes off from Southampton required 8,000 separate articles of clothing, 
for one scene. It collected over 500 derby hats from the U.S. and the U.K. <laughs> it took a cost. That, that, that piece, that fact doesn't go anywhere. I just wanted to get it in there. And just, I just shoved it 500 right there. derbies. Yeah. It took the costume department over a full year to finish making the clothes for the cast. In many cases, they incorporated fabric from vintage garments. Hundreds of 1912 era dresses were restored. Uh, they, there's a story that they found this beautiful gown that had been locked away in a trunk that was barely used except for a big brown sauce stain on the front. Clearly, the wearer wore it once, stained it, and then threw it aside. So they covered up an 80-year-old sauce stain with beading and used it. There's a head beater on the team. <laughs> um, these outfits would have been seen in color for the first time because everything would have been seen in black and white. So sometimes they would have, the production was shocked to see something that was actually bright purple. Um, there was a saying in the Titanic costume department that there's a soul in every dress, something everyone associated with production took very seriously. 150 of the main extras were given the names of real passengers and informed of their individual personal histories. This would get even more poignant when the sinking occurs. A full-time etiquette coach was hired to instruct the cast on era-appropriate manners among the upper class. And for the extremely pedantic of those of among you, Rose's mother actually makes a minor Edwardian era faux pas when she's having tea. In the scene, all the ladies at the table are wearing gloves, and this would have never happened, as Edwardian ladies of the era would have removed their gloves and placed them in their naps under their napkins before eating or drinking so they didn't get dirty. Costumes were helpful for the actors to get into character, especially as far as women were concerned. They literally could not dress themselves without help back then. Even taking down their hair or removing their corset required help from a maid. Getting ready for dinner was an hour-long process requiring several sets of hands. For the performers, it was a very literal way of experiencing just how claustrophobic and restrictive the era was for women of the time. Cameron would later say that the movie pivoted on the end of the Edwardian age and the death of the old overt repression of women and the beginning of a more covert repression of women. <laughs> it's a good quote. Yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, respectable women in 1912 rarely wore makeup and certainly Respectable in quotes, I should say. Well, yeah. Uh, certainly nothing as bold as the face that Rose or even what her mother wears in the film. Um, at the time, red lipstick was associated with the suffragette movement as a radical act of feminist rebellion and protest. There's a historian named Madeline Marsh who writes about the era of makeup in her book, Compacts and Cosmetics, Beauty from Victorian Times to the Present. She writes, whilst the explicit intention of the suffragists was votes for women, the implicit message was that whether they were new women cycling in bloomers and sensible shoes or elegant ladies in big hats and bright lipstick, Women should be free to choose what they wanted to look like and who they wanted to be. All this being said, Rose and her mother would have caused a stir if they had showed up to dinner with a full face like they do in the movie. Well, you recall that only one side of the full-scale Titanic set was built, the right or starboard side. So what happened when you needed to film the other side of the ship, you ask? You just flipped the image. This wasn't too tricky most of the time, except for the departure scene at the docks in Southampton. In real life, the Titanic was facing the other way, with the port or left side facing the docks. Obviously, James Cameron was a stickler for details, and he, he wouldn't be able to live with himself if the Titanic departed <laughs> from the wrong direction on the dock. Uh, so in order to have everything look normal, he had to have everything flipped. He just reversed the image. So all the text on all the signs, all the logos, all the shirts for the crew and their buttons 
Hats were tilted the opposite way. Hair partings were done the opposite way. Even Rose's beauty mark was placed on the opposite side of her face. As one crew member said, I wasn't dyslexic before starting this shoot, but I am now. (laughs) Everything was done backwards so that when they flipped it in post, it looked normal. And, you know, it's just insane all the stuff they had to consider. Going to the wreck, rebuilding the ship, shooting it backwards. At no step in this process did they make this movie easy on themselves. A few other cute things about the scene at the dock. The guy who plays the pub keeper in the scene where Leo and his friend Fabrizio win their tickets in the poker game. You know, no mate, Titanic leaves for New York in five minutes or ten minutes of that guy. Um, I've, I probably should have watched this before. I mean, I've watched it enough times. I can do it. <laughs> I was going to say. Memories, but yeah. Um, that guy, he's an actor named Shay Duffin, and he's related to one of the Irish workers who built the Titanic in real life. So I like that. It's a little bit of, you know, bloodline lineage there. Uh, And also about 23 minutes into the movie, when Rose and her mother and Cal board the Titanic, in the background, there's a third class passenger you see getting his beard checked for lice. All the immigrant passengers had to get, you know, numerous health checks before they boarded. That is James Cameron. He also has a cameo playing a bearded third-class passenger, or maybe it's the same passenger, who passes Jack and Fabrizio as they look for their cabin on board. So there's a nice little Hitchcockian cameo there. In this movie, the Titanic triumphantly heads out to sea, but James Cameron actually emitted a slightly less than triumphant moment that occurred in real life when the Titanic pulled away from the dock. The ship was so big... How big was it? Thank you. It was was so big that the suction from its propellers drew in the nearby boats, and the mooring lines on one ship actually snapped and drifted towards the Titanic, and there was very nearly a collision. And the ship was called the New York, which is sort of spooky considering the Titanic was headed for New York and never made it. So in truth, the Titanic very nearly had a disastrous send-off, which is basically the maritime equivalent of a fender bender at the dock. But, you know, it would have actually delayed the voyage, and there's a high possibility that the Titanic wouldn't have struck an iceberg, or at very least, the iceberg had struck. So if you subscribe to the multiverse theory, (laughs) if this minor incident had occurred, 1,500 people's (laughs) lives might have been spared. So that's an interesting way of looking at it. But anyway, this incident would have dragged the action a little too much, and Cameron wanted the opening of the Titanic leaving Southampton to be this jubilant occasion where the sinking is the farthest thing from everyone's mind. Because otherwise, you wouldn't be able to come close to understanding what it felt like when everything went wrong. The confidence that passengers, the crew, the whole Edwardian age really had in this largest moving object ever made. You know, this was a thing of pride, a thing of joy. And I think that to have anything that was anything less than pure jubilance would have distracted from that fact. The opening shot of the ship sailing, you know, the take her to see Mr. Murdoch, let's stretch her legs. That was known as the million dollar shot. And not just because that was nearly what it cost to do. The producers later said that making the Titanic sail in this scene took pretty much every special effects trick in the book, plus a few they had to invent. They filmed on the massive Titanic set and composited literally hundreds of elements, ranging from digital birds, computer-generated water, smoke, and a waving flag. They had extras waving in an empty parking lot, green screened in to look like they were waving goodbye from the dock. There were motion-captured digital people that they added to populate the ship, which these days look like The Sims or something. It's not very good. Uh, Wake elements were shot off of real ships and manipulated digitally. It's a gigantic background painting of a sky, all combined with a massive model on a soundstage. This was 
a big deal, a technological marvel to pull off. The movie is really a perfect blend of the practical effects and the CGI, which really makes me wonder how terrible this movie would have looked if James Cameron took the Avatar approach and just went full green screen on <laughs> everything. The departure of the Titanic brings us to one of the most immortal lines in this highly quotable movie. Heigl, can you do it? I can't, I can't summon no, that much I enthusiasm. Can't. I can't, yeah, I can't sound that excited. I'm the king of the world. <laughs> About nothing. <laughs> I'm king of the world. I'm king of the... I'm king of the world. I'm king of the world. I'm king of the world. <laughs> that is what James Cameron yelped when he won his Oscar, and it's deservedly included on the American Film Institute's top 100 movie quotes of all time list. Shockingly, this line was not in the script. Some listicles have said that Leo made it up on the spot. Uh, James Cameron has said this is not the case, and he made it up on the set himself. This could be Cameron once again being a control freak, but let's be real, that joyous line does not sound like something Leo would have ever said on his own voluntarily. Uh, in fact, like most things involved with this production, it took a hell of a lot of persuading to get Leonardo DiCaprio to say that line. James Cameron was interviewed for the BBC's series Movies That Made Me when he talked about the genesis of the famous line. It was made up on the spot. I was in a crane basket and we were losing the light. I had tried this and we had tried that, tried this line and that line, and I was just coming up snake eyes. In other words, it sucked. And I said, all right, I got one for you. Just say I'm the king of the world and just spread your arms out wide and just be in the moment and just love it and celebrate it and love it. And he goes, what? They're doing this all over walkie-talkie as Cameron's up in the basket and Leo's dragging his feet. Just say I'm the king of the world, but you got to sell it. <laughs> and, and, and Leo goes, what? And I said, just sell it. And God bless him, Leo sold it. <laughs> uh, Titanic has other improvised moments as well, like the scene where Jack teaches Rose to spit. And also when Rose spits in Cal's face, Rose was supposed to jab Cal with a hairpin, but spitting was much more dramatic. Apparently, Billy Zane's surprise reaction shot is authentic. <laughs> and when they reshot Kate's close-up, they were initially going to have her spit egg white so it would show up on camera better. But ultimately, they had her spit KY jelly. Oh, Gross. Yes. Also, this is weird. The line that she says in that scene is, I'd rather be his whore than your wife. That's a line that was spoken by Peggy Lipton in an episode of Twin Peaks. And bizarrely, or perhaps not bizarrely, both Billy Zane and David Warner, who played Cal's valet Lovejoy, this kind of toady character, uh, both appeared in that episode of Twin Peaks as well. So that's very interesting to me. Maybe that's something they brought to the scene, too. Kay Winslet had another great ad lib as the ship was sinking and she and Leo found themselves hanging on to the back of the boat. Jack, this is where we first met. She had lived that. It's where they first met all of two days ago. <laughs> anyway, that was from Kate Winslet. And also apparently the scene where Rose seeks out Jack to thank him for saving her life. And they talk on the deck and uh, just kind of shoot the breeze, really. Most of that scene was ad-libbed. That's the one where he teaches her how to spit. Spit! It's where we came in. As I continue to get even more granular, I wanted to talk about a few other things, namely the various honorifics used in conjunction with Titanic. Old Rose says that Titanic was called the Ship of Dreams. No one, to my research at least, ever called her that at the time. Uh, things get even more tricky when it comes to Titanic's reputation as the supposedly unsinkable ship. 
Obviously, this makes for such a great story, a beautiful metaphor for mankind's hubris and arrogance in the face of nature, making this ship that they believed was unsinkable. But were people actually going around calling her unsinkable? The answer is sorta. There were news articles written around the launch of the Titanic and her sister ship, the Olympic, that used the word, but always with qualifiers. There was a contemporary article in Shipbuilder magazine that called the ships, quote, practically unsinkable, whereas another piece in the New York Times labeled them, quote, almost unsinkable. In modern times, the pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction, and people say that nobody actually thought the Titanic was unsinkable at the time, and it was just historical revisionism because it made for a better story. But that's not quite accurate. There was definitely an implication back in 1912 that the Titanic was unsinkable. A deckhand aboard the ship supposedly delivered the famous line to a passenger, which was later said by Cal, God himself cannot sink this <laughs> ship. And even Captain Smith was fond of calling a ship unsinkable. And when the first spotty news reports started coming in over the very primitive wireless about a problem with Titanic before they knew that it had completely sank, the New York head of the White Star Line, Philip Franklin, told the press, There is no danger that Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable, and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers. And when he learned the bad news that the ship was now sitting at the bottom of the ocean, he tearfully told the press, I thought her unsinkable. I base my opinion on the best expert advice. I do not understand it. But this is all depressing. <laughs> so let's pick it up. Yes, one of the most life-affirming scenes in the movie, let's go to a real party. The dance down in the third-class general room with music courtesy of the band Gaelic Storm. <laughs> do you remember them? I do, no, I mean, I do remember this whole boom era for like Gaelic music in the, in the 90s. It was like, uh, you know, uh, Lord of the Dance, Michael Flatley and uh, I think yeah I don't know where and yeah and yeah 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 <laughs> to a lesser extent Dropkick Murphys flogging Molly oh yeah, yeah. Whole, I think they were Dropkick Murphys formed in like the mid nineties in Boston but yeah we had oh, a whole even earlier we had a whole <laughs> wither the Dropkick Murphys <laughs> wither Michael Flatley I mean being from outside of Boston I wasn't sure if that was just like the Irish influence in the area, but apparently there was a the mid to late nineties was a real boom time for Irish folk music. Well, sadly, no such dance ever took place. <laughs> they were too Aww. beaten down. Um, in reality, the third class accommodations were segregated by gender. Uh, so a party like this never would have happened, but that dancing scene is such a perfect tonal anecdote to the boring world of first class. Uh, it's a celebration of these people embarking off to pursue a new life, putting aside their friends and family to go make a fresh start of things, which we know how that turned out. If you were a male in steerage, you had a one in 10 chance of surviving the sinking of the Titanic. Jack and Rose try and dance the polka, uh, which is the official state dance of Jack's home state of Wisconsin. Um, friend of the pod, the polka. Um, <laughs> Leo apparently loved to Leo apparently loved to tease Kate Winslet about the side of her feet, which he would refer to as canoes. Uh, she would, he, she later said, we would sit on the floor and he'd go, come on, sweetie, foot to foot. And I'd put my foot up and he would just fall about laughing because my feet are exactly the same size as his. <laughs> you do not tease a woman about her shoe size or foot mm, size. That's no. not okay. Cher is still haunted by the, by when she was at the uh, a screening of Moonstruck and someone laughed at the size of her foot. Was it size? I thought he was like, that's a really long, thin foot. Length, size, uh, semantics. Yeah. Uh, we no talked about this. Foot shamed. <laughs> exactly. Quentin Tarantino. No Quentin Tarantino can be. 
<laughs> we talked about this in the Parent Trap episode, but the little girl with curly hair in the scene, Cora, Jack's best girl, she was originally supposed to be played by Lindsay Lohan, but uh, James Cameron recast her because he was worried that her red hair would confuse viewers into mistakenly believing that she was related to Rose and her mother. In the beginning of the movie, the submarine cameras spot a doll face buried in the sand in the debris field, um, which is later revealed to be Cora's doll, which is a nice poignant little touch. That was based on a real incident when the man who discovered Titanic, Dr. Robert Ballard, was in the midst of an early dive looked out of his porthole to see a small porcelain face staring back at him, which understandably scared the shit out of him. Can you imagine oh. being at the crushing depths in utter darkness and looking over and seeing a doll's face peering out of that at you. I would, my soul would leave my body. He, well, at first he didn't realize it was a doll, which made it so much worse. Cause there were, they weren't sure. I'd have a heart attack. I, how would you do, what do you do? You're already enough anxiety cursing through your body to power a small country. And then you look over and you see a perfectly white face peering at you. Oh my God. Oh, I'm going to have nightmares about that tonight. Because people wait, I got to send it to you. There's a picture of it. I want your live reaction. Oh, God. <laughs> oh. It's somehow worse than I remember. <laughs> well, I, but I'm, before I send this to you, this was one of his earliest dives, and I don't think they were sure about whether or not there would be bodies down there because it's so deep that, it, you know, it's it's freezing, and they're not yeah. really... Sh- it, like the, Grinds the bones into dust. Yeah. Well, well, no, not even that. It doesn't grind the bones in the dust because you become pressurized as you sink down there. Mm. Um, but so they're not sure if they're going to be perfectly preserved or if sea creatures, which tend to be the case, would eat the bodies. Uh, and really, you only see where the bodies fell. The only sign that anything was ever there were our two shoes. That's all that remains. So now all over in the debris field, you just see two pairs of shoes spaced, you know, a foot apart. Going in opposite directions. Yeah. So he looked out the way. He wasn't sure about what the body situation was going to be like. And he looked out and he saw this. Oh, God. Oh. It's really bad. Nope. No. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Yep. Sleep well. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Let's try and pick this back up. Uh, the famous <laughs> I'm Flying Jack scene at the front yeah. of the ship. No, the, oh, there we go. There we go. During the last sunset that the ship would ever see. Um, oh, I did it again. Uh, um, that sunset is not, in fact, CGI. It was real. Cameron said he was always drawn to the bow of the ship because that's where the rubber meets the road. Okay, Jim. Uh, he said he based the scene ever so lightly on a romantic moment that he had on a skyscraper in New York. Aw, but declined to elaborate further. I think Catherine Bigelow was from New York, so... Hmm. Oh, maybe that was... Yeah. He wanted to rehearse the kiss to such a degree that he drew little lips on his hands to demonstrate exactly what he wanted out of the two of them. <laughs> Who was going to lead... Like, he described it as choreographing a football play on lips. Um, oh. That's weird. Was the over-under on James Cameron practicing kissing on his own hands? <laughs> uh, yeah. He dis- this gets so much worse. He described what he wanted to Leo. This is basically the lovemaking scene. If there's one woman on the planet left who doesn't want to f*** you, one Eskimo in the Yukon who just got a TV, she will after this. <sighs> what a charmer. Obviously, there was a short amount of time each day that they could get the requisite sunset lighting, and every time they tried it, it wasn't quite right. Then, on the last day of shooting exteriors on the ship set, it was cloudy. Everyone was freaking out, trying to make the best of their time by shooting on other parts of the set. And then suddenly, just before the sunset, the clouds parted and the sun poked through. The entire crew sprinted the length of several football fields to the front of the set. Kate's changing her outfits in a van as she's being whisked over. She runs to the peak, looks at the sunset, turns to Cameron and screams, Shoot! Because of a mad scramble to... <laughs> because of the mad scramble to get there, the scene is technically out of focus, but Cameron nevertheless considered it the perfect sunset he had been waiting for, and this is the shot that ended up in the movie. The camera used to shoot that sequence was recently auctioned off by Julian's a few weeks back. I couldn't I figure out li- what it went for. I just listened to a uh, podcast about um, uh, Darren Aronofsky. Do you, you know the scene in Requiem when Ellen Burstyn delivers that incredible monologue about like being old oh, and why she... God. It's crushing. It's it, yeah. if you watch it, it goes out of focus a little. It's because the cameraman was crying. <laughs> Whoa! Is it like in Good Will Hunting when Robin Williams is talking about like the little intimate moments that he would have oh, with, with his, his wife? wife? Yeah, yeah. And he was just ad libbing, and the camera starts to shake because he's the like, guy was crying. Well, no, he was laughing. Oh, 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 oh. The, yeah, 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 yeah. Different reactions. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. It has often been said that uh, in real life, passengers were not allowed up the front of the ship, which is semi-true. There were signs posted prohibiting passengers to the very front because of all of the heavy equipment that was there, in addition to the obvious hazard of falling overboard. But in real life, first-class passenger Helen Candy made her way to the bow of the ship on the morning of April 14th to see the last sunrise the ship would ever see, standing at the exact point Jack and Rose did. It is unclear whether or not she had permission to do this. She later wrote about it, saying she felt the power and beauty of the ship and believed that it was stronger than nature itself, maybe even stronger than God itself. Then she recalled feeling a darkness spread over her, as if her sacrilegious thought had cursed the ship, transforming it into a haunted ship of ghosts who didn't know they were yet dead. Grim! Bill Paxton later described her as his favorite Titanic passenger. (laughs) 
she the was, hubris in this. Uh, it's incredible. It's like that. Um, it's like that tweet that was stolen from a Tumblr thing. Uh, R.I.P. to everybody killed by the gods for their hubris, but I'm different, better, <laughs> maybe even better than the gods. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how the, I mean, this certainly adds to the story, but I'm not quite sure how she uh, is. Helen Churchill, Candy Woman, um, fractured her ankle getting into the lifeboat, which. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Well, everyone knows that kissing leads to being sketched nude on a chaise lounge. So it is time to talk (laughs) about the draw me like one of your French girls scene. It's perhaps the most memed moment of the entire movie, which is a very memeable movie. Given that it's such a famous scene, there's a lot of stories out there about it. Uh, Notably that it was actually one of the first things that Kate and Leo shot together. Of course, we're about to give you much more information on this scene. Many of the sets were behind on construction, and James Cameron was desperate to shoot anything. And the set of Rose's Room was one of the few sets that was complete. It's suite B-52, 54, 56, one of the famous millionaire's suites with a private promenade deck, which would have cost $4,350 at the time, or the equivalent of $133,000 today, according to Inflation Counter. To put all this in perspective, this was an era when the average American made $500 a year. So, yes, that suite that Rose (laughs) has is about 10 times the annual income for an American. In 2005, years after the movie Titanic was released, James Cameron dove on Titanic again for a documentary, and he entered the remains of the suite that they had based Rose's room on, and he saw the fireplace with the clock still bolted in place above it, which is pretty powerful. Uh, (laughs) Rose's suite was, in real life, going to be occupied by the American financier J.P. Morgan, who ran the parent company that owned Titanic's shipping line, the White Star Line. But he canceled at the last moment, and the room was thought to be empty at the time of the filming of the Titanic movie, though it was more recently established that J. Bruce Ismay, the managing director of the White Star Line, basically upgraded himself. And he's in the Titanic movie. He's the guy, one of the villains of the movie. He has a very snidely whiplash mustache that (laughs) telegraphs him as a villain. He's the guy who's pressuring the captain to try to go faster. Uh, So he's not a very well-liked guy in the Titanic story, especially considering that he boarded a lifeboat when the ship that he sort of technically owned was sinking when so many others died that were on the ship that, you know, he controlled. So, yeah, he's not a well-loved figure. Um, There's a conspiracy theory about J.P. Morgan canceling his trip on the Titanic that I'll try to do this roughly off the dome It's almost all certainly bogus, but it's fascinating anyway. Um, It's a documented fact that there was a coal fire in one of the Titanic's coal bunkers when the ship launched. This was relatively common on ships, but not great to put passengers on a ship where there's a fire burning uncontrollably. Um, Metal room, but still. There's a theory that J.P. Morgan canceled because he didn't want to be on board a ship that was technically on fire. And according to this half-baked theory, which again, sounds cool, but doesn't really hold up, uh, the crew was speeding across the Atlantic and Ismay was pushing the captain to go faster and they were speeding across the Atlantic for two reasons. One, they wanted to get to New York early the night before they were expected so that fire trucks could pull up under the cover of night and they wouldn't be able to be photographed in the dark and these pictures wouldn't be put in newspapers and all these rich people wouldn't find out that they had been put aboard a ship that was technically on fire. 
Also, in order to fight the fire, the stokers supposedly have been shoveling the burning coal into furnaces to burn the fire away. What's the science there? So you've got piles of coal that are going into a boiler that's kind of next to it, and you're shoveling the coal into the boiler. If there's a fire and the coal stands to get set alight in the fire, you want to get rid of the coal as quickly as possible. I don't, again, this is a this is a bad theory. Bad theory, but go with it. <laughs> okay, okay. So okay. the theory is the soakers shovel as much coal as possible into these boilers, which would then make the ship go faster. That's what, you know, lighting more boilers makes ships go faster. Mm. And that could have been the reason for the speed of the ship as well. They wanted to get to New York sooner, and they were going fast because they would lit more boilers to try to burn through this coal so it wouldn't catch on fire and this fire would go out. Uh, in addition to burning all this extra coal, it also, according to this theory, again, meant that the heating system was kicked into overdrive, which meant that passengers opened their portholes to let cool air in. There were no thermostats on the Titanic. It was either off or on. So you have this fire which made the ship's owners head full speed into an ice field. And then they hit an iceberg, which meant that as the ship settled lower and lower into the water, water poured into the portholes that were left open because it was so hot. The iceberg damage, although it occurred over a 200-feet gap, these holes were just a couple of inches wide, and collectively it's believed that all the holes that sunk the Titanic were collectively only about 12 feet tall. So every one of these one or two foot wide open portholes was a big deal. Uh, the Titanic would have sunk anyway, but the portholes almost certainly did contribute to the sinking of the ship and the speed that it did so. This theory doesn't hold up to a tremendous amount of scrutiny, and there's a possible chance I'll just cut this whole segment, <laughs> but there was indeed a coal fire. Is that wild? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that. None of that. I don't like any of that. Hmm. Boarding a ship already on fire. I mean, that is true, but it, it's something that was relatively common. There are all these theories that the fire um, weakened the steel. Yeah, I remember hearing that. Which that it, not it doesn't really, yeah, no. Jet, coal, anyway. Coal few can't melt titanic beams. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> oh. Anyway, back to the drawing. Having his leads shoot a nude scene in one of their first days on the set is obviously less than ideal, but James Cameron said it was good for having this kind of shy energy of young lovers getting naked together for the first time. It wasn't by any kind of design, although I couldn't have designed it better. There's a nervousness and an energy and a hesitance in them. Cameron then added, they had rehearsed together, but they hadn't shot anything together. And to break the ice beforehand, Kate apparently flashed Leo, and that's a fairly famous story. Uh, apparently, it wasn't completely intentional. She told People in 1998, I was having my makeup put on with nothing on, and there was Leo. He saw me and went, whoa. And I said, we're going to spend the whole day like this. We might as well get it over now. And that broke the ice. Love Kate Winslet. Yeah. Kate later said that she was obviously absolutely nervous for this scene, but she credited her time working with Emma Thompson in Sense and Sensibility with helping her. She said, I'd worked with Emma Thompson, who was a very physically open and relaxed person, and I'd seen her do nudity, and, you know, it was part of the story. <laughs> and when, I love this, when a charmingly nervous Leo is gearing up to sketch Rose, she stammers, lie on that bed, uh, I mean couch, the line was scripted, lie on that couch, but Leo was actually nervous in real life, and he made a mistake, and James Cameron liked it so much that he kept the line in. That's cute. Yeah, it is. It's a rare, cute moment with Leo in this movie. <laughs> uh, famously, James Cameron is the one who drew the sketch of Rose wearing the Heart of the Ocean necklace 
Uh, those are his hands in the close-up. Kate Winslet said in an interview with Colbert a few years back that Cameron had her pose in a bathing suit for the sketch, and then he elaborated from there. Cameron is left-handed, so once again, they had to do the whole flip-flop trick so it would come through as righty on the screen like Leo. Uh, in a rare factual minutia error, Jack slash James Cameron is using a modern square-sided pressed charcoal pencil with numbers embossed on the side of it. In 1912, Jack would have been using vine charcoal, which was round and made of charcoalized willow twigs. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the original prop sketch sold at auction in 2011 for $16,000, which kind of sounds like a steal. Do you and think that so? Fulfills, I yeah, it's like a key prop for like one of the biggest movies of all yeah, time. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, no, so make... fills our. Uh, it belongs in a museum segment for this program. <laughs> uh, but there are many, many duplicates of this drawing, as poor Kate Winslet has learned on a fairly consistent basis. She says that people approach her asking her to sign copies of the drawing, and the request makes her unhappy. She says, "I don't sign that picture. It feels very uncomfortable. Why would you do that? People ask me to sign that picture a lot. I'm like, no." I didn't mean for it to be a photograph that I would end up seeing 17 or now 25 years later. Yeah. 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 Uh, James Cameron also drew all of the French girls sketches in the binder that Jack was carrying with him. One of them, a picture of a man's hand around a young woman's torso with his hands on hers, is an exact replica of a photograph by the photographer Sally Mann called Rodney Plogger at 601, 1989. Obviously, this is an anachronism that was likely meant as a tribute, but apparently Miss Mann was not happy, and according to the New York Times Art and Leisure section, the resulting grievance was settled out of court for a substantial sum just weeks before the Academy Awards. Hmm. Uh, just another bill that was added to the $200 million price tag, I guess. <laughs> just throw it on the pile. <laughs> yeah. yeah, James Cameron, he really played fast and loose with the art in this movie. The art that Rose brought aboard that she's bringing back from Europe includes Water Lilies by Claude Monet and Les Demiselles de Avignon by Pablo Picasso. Neither of these were ever actually on the ship. Uh, in fact, the Picasso administration decided that it would not authorize the inclusion of Les Demiselles d'Avignon in the film because, according to the chairperson overseeing the administration, the painting has been on display at the Museum of Modern Art for well over 60 years and certainly did not go down with the ship when the Titanic sank. <laughs> Then, this administrator bought a ticket to see Titanic a few weeks after it opened and was, quote, surprised to see that James Cameron had put the painting in there anyway and even depicted it being submerged in Rose's stateroom as the ship sank. The chairperson said, We negotiated a fee after the fact, which, as one could imagine, included a substantial penalty. <laughs> the most famous and arguably important painting that was lost on the ship was called Le Cirassassien Aubin, by Mary Joseph Blondell, and the insurance claim for it was $100,000, or $2.6 million today, making it the most highly valued item lost during the ship's sinking, other than, you know, human life. Yeah. Uh, well, now to come to the other most iconic nude, nude scene in that movie, car sex. Let's talk about car sex. Let's talk about you and me. Um... <laughs> <laughs> that you sold <laughs> the uh yes the iconic sweaty hand sliding down the fogged up window of the renault town car renault yeah a 1912 type cb coupe de ville uh it is seen in the opening doc scene it did actually exist belonged to a mr william carter of Bryn Mawr, pa the only car on the ship 
Carter survived, yeah. and later sought reimbursement from the White Star Line for the value of his newly purchased car, which was five grand, or today about 150000 Uh, It has been a major treasure on the wreck, and though there are some pictures on various forums that claim to show a picture of the car's rusted fender, it has not been identified as still down there. Um well, it's still down there, but not been identified. It has not been positively identified as part of the wreck. You pedantic son of a bitch. <laughs> James Cameron raised it and keeps it as his very own. <laughs> I was going to say. Him and Susie Amos, Saturday nights <laughs> eats- in the rusted car hulk. Um, so, Kate Winslet has said that when she first met Leo, she thought he was so hot that acting in romantic scenes with him would have just been too awkward. Sure. Uh, 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 Conception of him that he surely thwarted by the whole uh, jacket farting situation. Um, they've been apparently shooting down relationship rumors for the past 25 years, which um, I can probably say, you know, we can obviously say they are not together because she is his age. Uh, but Kate did have some ground rules for Leo when it came to their kissing scenes. No coffee, no onions, no garlic, and no smoking prior to shooting them. DiCaprio agreed, and then would proceed to do exactly all of those things prior to their shoots on purpose because he was a little shit. This no doubt contributed to Winslet's affectionate nickname for him on the set, Stinky Leo. He would occasionally stick his tongue in her mouth during their kissing scenes just to make her laugh. And when asked about the sex scene in the car with Leo, Kate Winslet said, We'd just do the most ridiculous things to each other. He'd be tickling me, groping me, winding me up, and I'd be doing the same thing back, sort of grabbing his bum. Yes, I I just read that. The ship hits the iceberg soon after this sex scene, and so the handprint was no doubt still on the window when the water started enveloping the car. Oh, I'd like to add something to this. Our Please friend Allie uh, informed me. I, there is a uh, a ship's cat named Jenny. A lot of ships had cats to try to deal with rampant mice problems. I didn't realize that Jenny had kittens very soon before the ship's departure, who were probably among the ship's first victims. There's also a theory. I, I, I This is just off the top of my head, and I, I, I can't totally confirm it actually i don't think anyone can confirm it that there were some stowaways in the very front of the ship not far from where the town car was being stored and that cargo hold was one of the first places to flood so um they probably would have been the first human victims on the titanic these stowaways whose names have been lost to history Hmm. well should have kept with the car sex uh (laughs) energy there yeah. uh in the movie lookouts frederick fleet and reginald lee are seen gawking at rose and jack from the crow's nest moments before they spot the iceberg so it is possible that they were somewhat responsible for this collision uh the ship turns out it only needed to maneuver another 10 or 15 feet and it would have would have he want another anachronistic tv reference missed it by that much <laughs> wait what is uh, that? uh get smart oh yeah oh wow uh man 10 to 15 feet would have saved 1500 lives good lord uh true to accuracy the movie leaves 37 seconds between the crow's nest ringing the bell to warn the bridge and the collision you you haven't verified this yourself uh but there are reportedly two hours and 40 minutes of the movie set in 1912 which uh is the exact amount of time it took the ship to sink from 11:40 to 2:20 a.m most experts agree that if they had just given in to the inevitable and rammed the iceberg head on, the ship would have most likely survived, although hundreds of third-class passengers who slept in the cramped quarters at the front of the ship would have been crushed and killed immediately. 
Uh, just like in the film, tons of ice broke off the iceberg and littered the front of the ship, which was the third class area, leading many steerage passengers to come on deck and start playing impromptu games of soccer before they realized their cabins were beginning to flood. Some first class passengers even took chunks of the iceberg and put it in their drinks. The iceberg itself was CGI, but James Cameron ordered several hundred pound blocks of ice on set to dump onto the deck, which, as you mentioned earlier, he then proceeded to pick up an axe and started breaking up himself to get it to look the proper way. In her book, Titanic and the Making of James Cameron, Paula Parisi described the scene. Getting over their initial disbelief, the crew followed suit. Giving up his axe, Cameron stepped back and watched for 30 seconds, and then he just couldn't stand it anymore. He pushed a puny guy aside, taking his axe. It was just too much fun. Oh, James. <laughs> And this is the moment most 90s kids know as the end of the first VHS of the movie. The romance portion of Titanic is officially over as Captain Smith learns that his ship will founder. Well, J. Bruce Ismay says, A ship can't sink. She's made of iron, sir. I assure you she can. And that's when Captain Smith solemnly addresses J. Bruce Ismay, the one who'd been pressuring him to go faster in hopes of arriving to New York early and getting good press. And he delivers that immortal line, I believe you may get your headlines, Mr. Ismay. Screen goes blank. Hell of a cliffhanger for an intermission. This feels like a fitting place to leave you all. We will pick back up with the story in part three of our TMI Titanic trilogy epic. That's when all hell breaks loose. We'll get into the truly insane stories behind James Cameron's sinking of the Titanic, or should I say repeated sinkings, uh, an experience that nearly killed Kate Winslet many times over and cost the sanity of the crew. Uh, we will also get into the true life stories of heroism on the real Titanic sinking, bust some myths about the lifeboats, and tackle the most enduring controversy associated with the Titanic production, could Jack have fit on that floating piece of wood paneling along with Rose? <laughs> so please, join us for the third and final installment of our Titanic trilogy. <laughs> we have to, like, Photoshop you like uh, like Jim Carrey in the number 23, just with Titanic, like, written all over your face. <laughs> like, <kinda> just, <laughs> like, in a padded cell, wrapped in a straitjacket, just chanting White Star Line over and over again. <laughs> join us for the conclusion of Jordan's Descent into Madness. As the Large Boat trilogy concludes here on TMI. Large Boat 3, a good date to Large Boat. Large Boat 3, the return of the king. Uh, I don't know. What's another famous trilogy? The Large Large Boat 3 starring Sofia Coppola. Uh, what else What else we got? Have we done uh, Return of the Titanic? Large Boat? Return of the Large Boat? The, t the Titanicking. Uh, I do like Titanic 2, The Revenge. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Rontog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. 
Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.